Father, we know that your word is relevant for all ages and for all cultures. And we know that James was dealing with the same problems with the 12 tribes that were scattered around the world as we deal with today. And he gave instruction on how they're to combat the problems that come up, problems that originate in the flesh. I pray that this would be uh, helpful for us, this instruction, showing us how we're to live, how we're to combat temptation, how we're to be quick to listen and slow to speak, how we're to be hearers of the word and not just doers. All of those things, Lord, that have been pointed out to us already, help us to install them. And help us to make that a part of our lives to where other people recognize it, that we're doing this for your sake and for your kingdom and living for the life that is ahead, not for the life on this earth. With your help, we'll do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you remember who James is writing to, as I just previously said, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations in James 1.1, and we've dealt with, as I previously also said, temptation, And its origination, where it comes from, it comes from inside and how we're supposed to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and how we're supposed to hear the word and do it, not just hear it. Like when we look in a mirror and we see ourselves and we walk away and we forget what we look like. And then we dealt last week with faith that works and teachers and the tongue. And now we're getting into fights and quarrels. Now remember, he's writing to the 12 tribes. I've told you before that I have a Jewish lineage in my history. My grandfather was a full Jew who was ostracized by his family because he married a Baptist woman. And uh, he became a Christian, I guess a Messianic Jew, I guess is what you could call him at that time. <clears throat> and Jews, Jews have a tendency to be passionate. In other words, they hold strong opinions And in that passion and holding strong opinions, they can argue. And that's what happened to Jesus when he was there. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they would come and argue with Jesus about issues of the law and and the culture. And you have heard it said, where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. Uh, That has been popularized even since 1905. Uh, another guy by the name of Zhang Will is credited with saying that two Jews, if you have two Jews, you'll find three opinions. And it was cited in 1923. And it just goes through history where this is something, a uh, little colloquialism, that has been handed down from generation to generation. Because it's true. Because the Jews, they are known for being passionate. Being passionate would lend itself to be opinionated. And when someone is opinionated and passionate, they will have a tendency to argue. That's who the Jews were. In James chapter 4, verse 1, he deals with this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? So the the Jews, they would have these strong opinions and they would have a tendency to argue. Now we can see this on the news every single day, not just with Jews, but anybody who is out there, they have opinions and the opinions go at each other and we are becoming divided passionately as a country for those who believe in the biblical judeo Christian worldview and those who don't, those who have the atheistic worldview out there. <clears throat> I was listening, I listened to different things. Uh, Fraser Kane, he is a astronomer, journalist type guy, and I just like space and talk about space and everything that's out there. And he interviewed this man, and this man was talking about aliens. I don't know if you know the Fermi paradox, but 
The Fermi Paradox talks about if there are aliens out there, we should have discovered them by now. And it, it, that's a whole nother discussion. But this guy comes up and says, oh, no, they're out there. And when they start showing up, everybody's going to be seeing them and they're going to show up around the universe. And he gave a discussion for that. And he based it all on evolution. And I thought to myself, the premise, the foundation of his argument is built on something that is a falsehood. I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe that we could evolve from a pool of slimordial ooze and turn into a lizard from an amoeba and from a lizard to a land animal and from a land animal to a full-grown mammal where we're bipedal and we walk on two legs and we're just going to progress where everything in the universe is going from order to disorder. So just that basic premise that is there. And there are arguments in this realm. You know, the evolution versus creation, which I, the people that say old earth, young earth, I don't think it is ever going to be solved. And, and even Christians go back and forth with this. And scientists, good scientists, Hugh Ross is a good scientist, says the universe is old. And then you go to the Ark Encounter and Ken Ham and Ken Ham says, no, the earth is young. And, and they just war back and forth. And some people say in the, the young earth creation camp that if you don't believe that, you're destroying the Bible and taking out the very foundation of the whole world. And if you listen to Hugh Ross, he goes, it's impossible to start light that comes to us is 13 and a half billion years old and you do the calculation and then the other side comes up with we got an explanation for the speed of light and it's just back and forth and it's like where does it end well it really doesn't end because these beliefs are held deeply not just with jews who had problems arguing back and forth but with christians inside the church you know the Bible tells us of several different examples of Christians who argued back and forth. Remember in Mark chapter 9, the disciples, they were walking along and they came to Capernaum. And when they sat down, when they got to Capernaum, they sat down and Jesus said, what were you guys talking about on the road? Apparently as they walk, you know, Jesus is walking and the disciples are all behind them or maybe a few in front of them. And he could hear them talking and they were starting to argue back and forth. Remember what they were arguing about? Who's the greatest? That's who they were arguing. That's what they were arguing about. Like, I'm greater than you are. No, you're not. You didn't do this or I did that. And, and just back and forth about who's the greatest. Now, what is that dealing with? That's dealing with pride. Like, I am so good. You know, what is it? Fly like a butterfly and sting like a bee, something. I, I can do it. That's kind of the Muhammad Ali uh, phrase out there. Well, also in the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Christians were taking other Christians to court. Now, in the church of Corinth, there was a church in Corinth. And in the church, from this side to this side, somebody from this side would sue somebody from that side. And maybe somebody from this side would countersue somebody from that side. And I'm sure it was in the headlines of all the churches and the church bulletins. And Paul comes in and says, you guys need to knock this off. Stop it. Why not be wronged? rather than drag somebody into a secular court and let the secular court decide what's going to go on. So we have the disciples who were arguing back and forth, Who wants, and Jesus told them, whoever wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. And in Corinth, Paul told them, stop it. Don't go to secular court. Well, then in 
the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, says the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So inside the church, again, you have the south versus the north. They're just arguing back and forth with each other, backbiting, murmuring, slandering. Inside the church, that's what's going on. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, I plead with Yodia and to Sindici to agree with each other in the Lord. In other words, get them to stop arguing. Come on, can you guys intercede? These two women, I don't know what they were arguing about. You know, how the kids are being taken care of in children's church or you know what the women's ministry is doing or not doing and who can be involved in the decision-making process and who's in charge of hospitality and are the men going to be helping with the cleaning ministry or is it just the women that have to do? I mean, just back and forth all the time. Oh, you said something about my husband. Well, you said this about my child you could see how it just it's terrible it's terrible that this has taken place but Paul and Jesus is telling us that you know these are problems these are problems that have existed not only since the inception of the church but ever since the fall and then in James chapter 2 of course we have the class wars the haves and the have nots the rich and the poor Remember in First Corinthians, the agape feasts, they did more harm than good because people would show up for the communion feast and some would have a lot to eat and some would not have very much. And so the church was just wrought with problems of people warring against each other. And so why do we fight? Well, the previously mentioned passages, it's about superiority, it's about pride, it's about discontent, it's about class, or it's about right. Whenever buddy, when anybody ever steps up and says, well, I have rights, I think we should change the conversation to, I have responsibilities instead of rights. You know, we, we claim these rights. We have the right to life, right? But is that causing a problem in our culture? Yes, it is. Some people don't have the right to life, according to some. You have the right to liberty? Well, no, not according to some who are out there. You don't have the right to just do what you want. What Do you have the right to pursue happiness? No, because we have equity. You have to have everybody equal, which means you have to take down those who are on top because not everybody can be lifted up. And so everything is just going to be the same. So we still have these same arguments today. And it never really turns out good when we have these types of arguments. Let me tell you a story. A doctor, a lawyer, and a little boy and a priest were out for a Sunday afternoon flight on a small private plane. Suddenly, the plane developed engine trouble. In spite of the best efforts of the pilot, the plane started to go down. Finally, the pilot grabbed the parachute and yelled to the passengers that they better jump, and he himself bailed out of the plane. Unfortunately, there were only three parachutes remaining. The doctor grabbed one and said, I'm a doctor. I've saved lives, so I must live grabbed the parachute, and he jumped out. The lawyer then said, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers are the smartest people in the world. I deserve to live. He also grabbed the parachute and jumped. The priest looked at the little boy and said, My son, I've lived a long and full life. You are young, and you have your whole life ahead of you. Take the last parachute and live in peace. The little boy handed the parachute back to the priest and said, Not to worry, Father. The smartest man in the world just took off my backpack. 
And so you see, you get this pride, you get this sense of entitlement, you you get this idea that you were more deserving than somebody else, and it eventually leads to either an argument or some type of disaster that takes place. And when we argue, it usually does not result in both parties being agreeable. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody, tried to resolve it, and it comes to the point where you just go, okay, I see the error, everything is fine, I'm feeling good, we good? I, we're good back and forth? Most of the time it doesn't end like that. Usually, are we good? Yeah, fine. And the person walks away and they're discontent. That's usually how arguments end up. The best way not to have an argument is to not get engaged in an argument. And just relent, just say, okay, whatever you want, it, it's fine with me. And that should be the attitude of the believer. Even if we are wronged to avoid any type of conflict, the Lord would have us do that. And, you know, leaders in the church, it says they're not supposed to be given to quarreling, arguing back and forth. <clears throat> and, and so if we follow this, you know, there, there's going to be outward battles that we're going to recognize between either individuals or groups. But there's also going to be inward battles between right and wrong that take place within we always want to be justified. We always want to look better than we actually are. We always want to make the case for ourselves. The scripture says the first to come forward to present his case seems right until another come forward and questions him. And so that is our tendency. In the second half of verse 1, it says about these desires. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, and you don't have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let me repeat this here. Verse 2, it says, you want something, and the word that's used here is the word lust. You lust after something. Now, lust is a word that can be used. You have a strong desire, a motivational desire that drives you to something. And so you lust after something, but you don't get it. And it says, then you kill and covet. Now, kill is you're in this battle and you're going to war. You're going to go to war to get what you want. Now, remember, he's talking to the Jews, the 12 tribes, but this is also applicable to us. And you covet. Now, the covet, it's described like this, to have a warm feeling for or against. You're warmed towards something like, I want this, or I want to do this, or I want this for my life on the inside. <clears throat> and we cannot get what we want. It says you quarrel and fight and do not have. And that's where it starts off with usually just a verbal altercation. And then it can turn into fisticuffs. Now, for men in our culture, men have a unstated set of rules. You can look at each other, you can start to disagree, then the elevation, the tenor, the tone of the conversation tends to rise. Then the neck gets extended like this, and the shoulders get thrown back, and men will do this back and forth. And the ultimate end of that is fisticuffs. That's what it, you start crawling on the ground or beating each other up, and, and that's the way it goes. Now, in our society, thankfully, if a man has an argument with a woman, that is supposed to be off limits. You're not supposed to cross that line as a man. Now, a man will yell and he'll fret, but most of the time, a man will not hit. 
with the millennial culture that is here today, I cannot tell you how many news reports and little clips that I've seen of young men just hauling off and hitting women. And usually it's because the woman comes in and thinks she can take and harass the young man. And this is like high school, college age. I've seen several of those where the girl comes in and she just starts wailing on the guy. And the guy takes a few punches, you know, he, he dodges a few here and there. And then he just hauls off. I, I saw one where this guy just picked up this girl and over the back slammed her on the ground. It's like, we are getting way out if we're allowing that to be part of our society. But if you have a society with no God, there's no ultimate truth, there's no right and wrong, anything goes. And that's where we are headed. And obviously in these little clips that I've seen or the news blurbs that I've seen, they have something they want and they're not getting it. And when they don't get it, they fight They quarrel, they war, so to speak. So the selfish desire that happens on the inside, if we just give into it, it leads to an argument. If we just say, I can do without... Have you ever seen uh, some of those videos about minimalists? They want to live a life with whatever they don't absolutely need, they get rid of everything else. And so they have a few socks some shirts and a dresser and a bed and not much else. Some eating utensils. Why do you need a whole set of eight forks and spoons and knives? It's just you. You can have one for you and one for someone else. And they live a minimalist life. And, and if we have more of that attitude, not that you have to do without everything that you have, but if we just look at it as, you know, I don't need everything. I came into this world with nothing and I'm going to leave with nothing. And you can live more minimally. We all can But what do we do? We strive to buy a house. Then once we get the house, the garage fills up with stuff. Then once we have so much stuff in the garage, then we have to get a little unit for outside. And we have to put the stuff on the unit outside. And then we have so much, we have to have a garage sale to clear out more stuff, to get the new stuff, to put in the the shed that we have held back. And, And that's what we do. We have stuff. And we take none of it with us. And when we die... Our family members have to take care of all our stuff. And they come in and, what is all this stuff that is in here? And, and that's how we work. We want things. We want stuff. Now, I don't know why we're like that. It's, of course, it's probably because of the fall. But that's what happens. We have these desires, whether it's a physical item that we want or an attitude or an action out of somebody else. Remember Moses? Moses, he was raised as royalty in Egypt and he went out and he killed an Egyptian who was harassing some fellow Israelites now I ask myself the question why did he do that did he think he was going to be a leader of the Israelites and justify their cause when it comes to the nation of Egypt and appealing to Pharaoh that this is not right of course he was caught for that and he he had some motivation to kill this guy and then David remember David the death of Uriah in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where he sees Bathsheba taking a bath on a rooftop. Now, I know a rooftop is a place in Israel, especially during the times of David, that you would kind of live. You know, it's a little warmer in Israel. Uh, Jerusalem, the temperature is similar to what it is here in Lakeside. Uh, Jerusalem has had little flurries of snow that have fallen. I've been here in Lakeside at least twice. I know snow has come down in Lakeside. It didn't land and stick on the ground, but 
We've had snow here. The temperature is about the same. You know, they're a little bit of distance from the Mediterranean Sea and Lakeside. We're a little bit of a distance from the Pacific Ocean here. It's just about the same as far as life is concerned. So you'd live on top of these roofs, a rooftop patio. Well, Bathsheba's up there taking a bath on the rooftop patio. And David says, whoa, who's that? And from his palace, he can see this. And of course, we know the, make a long story short, he has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. Because why? Because he wanted his wife, Bathsheba. And he slept with her. She became pregnant. He wanted to have Uriah sleep with his wife to cover his tracks. He wouldn't do so. He is an honorable man. All the men on the front are fighting. And why can he go home and be with his wife? And you know the story. And after that, I believe it was Nathan that showed up and said, you have done wrong. But he wanted something. He lusted. He had the strong desire for Bathsheba. And so a quarrel and fight, there's an escalation. It starts with strong arguing and then fists because, for men at least, because we have this desire within us. We want to pursue it. And like I said before, it's either a thing, an action, or an attitude. And you know, this is something that is not just in the church, like I gave you examples of, not just with the Jews, which the Old Testament is filled with, but in our current culture, this is something that happens hundreds, maybe even thousands of times every single day. This last week, there were three stories that came out. <clears throat> maybe you saw some of the news stories about this. There was a car that pulled up to a liquor store in California here. And in the liquor store, there was an older man in his 70s, and he was watching the monitors outside the store, inside the store. And he saw that a guy was getting out of the store, and he had what looked like an AR-15, and he's going to be walking in. The guy saw what he did, immediately grabbed his shotgun, and was waiting for the guy to come in. The guy comes in with the AR-15, he gets ready to shoot he says freeze and the man behind the counter shot him with the shot it's all on video you can look it up and the the old guy the older guy he did suffer a heart attack after this but the guy with the ar-15 he wanted to rob the store he wanted to take some goods whether it was liquor or whether it was cash whatever it was And he ended up running out screaming, he shot my arm off. Well, they later found him in the hospital because his arm, the wound on his arm was consistent with the shotgun blast. A guy called the police. They ended up arresting him and they found out all the arms that he had were stolen as well. There were three or four guys in the vehicle. And it's all because they wanted something and they weren't getting it and they were willing to go to war to get it. That was one story. Then another one I saw, a little news blurb about this Antifa rioter. And he had this jacket on and it said Antifa in the back. And somebody is filming this with their phone. And he goes up, these guys were skateboarding. And they start arguing back and forth. The Antifa guy comes up, grabs the guy, pulls his jacket kind of over his head. And he just starts swinging just repeatedly. The skater, he's pretty good. He's ducking, he's weaving, he's bobbing, you know. And the guy is kind of missing. And then there's this woman trying to pull the guy away. And he won't be pulled away. And he must have given about 10 or 15 hits trying to hit this skater. The skater, he realizes what's going on. He pulls back 
And he just comes in with his hook and decks this guy. I stood up and go, yeah! No, I didn't do that. <clears throat> but decked him, knocked him out on the ground. And then the skater gets on him and, you know, he gets like six or seven good hits on the head and then somebody pulls him off. And it's all because the Antifa guy wanted something. He wasn't getting it. And there was an argument that pursued. And the result was the fisticuffs. Then there was the Las Vegas owner. Maybe you saw this one, this news report. This guy's behind the counter. Some guys, masked, two masked guys come in, and they want something from the vape store. The first guy, he comes in, and he takes the tip jar. The guy that uh, owned the vape store, he goes, you know, that's fine. Okay, go ahead, take the tip jar. Just go ahead and leave. Well, then he starts reaching for stuff over the counter to try to pull stuff off the, the uh, wall that's right behind the counter. And so the owner, he starts coming around to stop him. Then the other guy, he hops over the counter to try to get stuff. Well, the owner, he pulls out a three-inch blade and he starts stabbing the guy. And he stabbed him like six times. And the guy goes, I'm dead, I'm dead, please stop, don't kill me. And it's like, they wanted something. They wanted to rob. They wanted to take what this guy had. They didn't earn it. They had evil intent. And because of that, it did not turn out well. And so you see, when we get in these arguments, we have things we want and we're not satisfied with that. Well, it's not going to end well if you just continue in that mode. And this is what James is telling the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews that are there. But it's written to us as Christians in the New Testament. We're supposed to follow the same pattern. Don't get involved in this stuff where you have to have something. Just walk away. And if people don't want to give you what you want, go, okay. You're not going to give me what I want? Well, I'll just deal with that. And then we have this tendency to ask God for things that we really want, but the hidden motivations are often selfish or self-interested. I want something, God. God, if you just let me win that lottery. What what was that one that one point something billion dollars that one person won? It's like, what are you going to do with all... Man, I I don't know what I would, I have no idea what I would do with that much money. And God knows that. And so I don't win the lottery, even though I play every day. No, I don't. I don't play every day. But this idea, we, we want things, you know, we start asking God, God, if you just do this for me, then things will be good. And we ask to heap it upon ourselves. We want it for ourselves. Now, I think that there are some good requests that we make of God. Those requests should be something that is not a temporary request necessarily, but something that will result in good for not only us, but for the people around us and may have an eternal benefit. That's what we should be asking for. And whenever we ask for things like that, I believe God answers those prayers. He wants us to have certain things in order to bless others, in order also that God would be witnessed about through our actions. In verse 3 it says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You know, so we're usually asking in a way that it will soon be used up. Uh, it's a temporary request and not having a lasting or eternal beneficial impact in our lives or the lives of others. And that's how we should ask for something. That it has a benefit that is outside of us, that it isn't limited to us. You could ask the question before you even ask God for what you want. 
would God want me to have this? Now, for instance, marriage. Who doesn't pray for a spouse? I think almost everyone prays for a spouse, that we would have a spouse, or a spouse for our children or for our grandchildren. And when somebody prays for a spouse, do they pray in such a way, Lord, give me a husband or wife so I'll be happy? That's not the reason you get married. And you have to tell that to those people who would like to get married. Or if you're in premarital counseling, he fulfills me. That's not why you're getting married. You're getting married to become a servant or a slave to the person you're marrying without expecting anything in return. Now, there are some biblical precepts there that the husband is the provider for the wife, supposed to provide for her, and she's supposed to respond and give back to the husband. That's how it's supposed to work. And he's the one that sets all the initiatives up, and he's the one that provides directions. He's the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. The initiative has to come from him. We get that. But if somebody is focusing on what they can get out of the marriage, that's the wrong reason to be married. The Lord would say, no, you're dying to yourself just like Christ died for the church. The husband dies for the wife and the wife responds relentlessly to the desires of the husband. That's the way it's supposed to be. But it requires both parties, both the wife and the husband to die. But if you're always praying for the spouse that will fulfill your needs or make you a better person or just make your life wonderful... You're praying for the wrong thing. And that's where we can pray and ask amiss. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever the people would not do the will of God, God would call them an adulterous people. In other words, they're going after the things of the world, the things that the world provides, or even the things that Satan would tempt them with, rather than going after what God says we should have. In verse 4, he says, You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So the things that the world provides, the things that you love in the world, those are the things that would take us away from God. And God says, no, you're being an adulteress. And it's actually the feminine plural in the New Testament word that's used there because that was a derogatory statement against anybody in the Old Testament if they're called an adulteress. And he's saying, you all are adulteresses. And so he was slamming them, calling them a derogatory uh, term. <clears throat> and so God, God would say, forget the things of the world. Just live for him, live for Jesus. And if you do that, then things are going to go good. Don't demand your rights. Don't demand what you should have. You know, the world... It, it, when it's being referred to the world here, it's a society that organizes itself apart from God. That's what a society is. That's what our society is doing. It's organizing itself. It's being transformed into a, a culture that is apart from the things of God. For instance, I'm going to give you some examples here, especially contemporary examples. If you said, I love Antifa or BLM, that is, those two organizations are against God's will. Or if you say, I love our political system and how it's working. Who can say that? I know that there's like 13 or 18% of the people in the country that thinks things are going well. Or I love equity over equality. 
you know, the equity. And these are all new terms in the past two years that we've come up with that we never used before, like woke. What is woke? Like you're awake. What does that mean exactly? And, and this is another one, equity. It just means everybody has the same outcome. Not everybody has the same opportunity. And so to have the same outcome, you have to level the playing field. You have to take away from some and give to others. And of course, that flies in the face of biblical Judeo-Christian ethics. How about, uh, I love our efforts in climate change. You know, this, this one is very, very serious. Uh, there is a company that produces like 30% of the ammonia. Now, ammonia is used in ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate is a fertilizer. And they're reducing the amount of ammonia that they are creating. Uh, some of the countries in Europe, and Netherlands specifically, they're cutting them back to 30% of the cattle production. They're having protests over there. They're cutting out the farms. Many farmers are going to go bankrupt. They're going to lose their farms. They're cutting the food production total. When you cut the food production, what happens? Starvation. And when starvation happens, a lot of the European countries that produce food, that food goes to Africa. Africa is unable to produce a lot of food. And so they have to have some brought in. And so they're reducing the quantity of food for the people in the world, which will lead to starvation. Do you think the people don't know what they're doing when they're installing these measures? They absolutely know what they're doing, and they don't care about the people who are going to be affected. Did I tell you, you know, we're supposed to go to electric cars, and in 2030 they're going to ban the sale of all electric cars and I think it's by 2035 in the state of California. They don't want any internal combustion engines on the road. And so that's where we're headed. But you know, the average home, how many cars do you have in your home? You just think about it. Do you have two cars? Do you have three cars? The average home, the panel in the average home is not set up to charge two or three cars per night for eight to 10 hours. Now imagine everybody in California doing that. You don't have the infrastructure. You're going to have to build some nuclear power plants. You're going to have to build some cold fire power plants. Do you think they're going to? No, they are not going to do that. What does that mean? Sorry, you don't get to go to work today. You can go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I don't know if you guys remember the odd or even license plate when we had the gas shortages. You could only go on certain days because of your license plate and what it had. And if you were the wrong person in line and there would be fisticuffs because you're not getting what you want. You want the gasoline to be able to go. To, you see how it all works? And this climate change one, it is horrible it is a blight on us and people you know we're living off the food from the previous year well what's it going to be like in 2023 or 2024 or 2025 if they continue with this action it is going to get bad people are going to be affected and actually people in certain parts of the world are going to die because of starvation and the people who are in charge of this they don't care because it is a society that is being built without God. There needs to be fewer human beings in the world. That's the WEF that is out there. And how about this one? I love our media and how it reports the truth with no agenda. 
We know that they have an agenda. We know that. Uh, what about I love the right to choose when it comes to abortion, gender affirmation, hormone replacement therapy given to adolescents. I think it's all great. I think it's child abuse. I think the people should be thrown into prison that go down that road. But it's a society that we see that is apart from God. They don't care about God. They don't even recognize that he exists. And they're going to do it the way that they think it ought to be done. And as a result, it's not going to turn out well. So when we give in to our desires, when we fight, we kill, we covet, all of those things, it doesn't end well. But if we do what God wants, it ends well. And there is blessing to be had. God loves us and desires to give us only good things. He does not want us to love the world or the things of the world. And so that's the advice that's being given here through the book of James. Now, what should we store up? What should we seek to possess? What should we learn to love? Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth, and he had great desire with that wealth. And if you have wealth, great. Just don't have a huge desire to hold on to it, because like I said, we can't take anything with us, and we want to bless those around us. But this idea of material possessions... Proverbs chapter 10 verse 19 says, wise men store up knowledge. If you are wise, you'll store up knowledge because if you have knowledge, you won't have to worry about provision. Provision will come through the wisdom that God gives. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Not that we're not supposed to have things, I think we are supposed to have things, especially to provide for our families and for those who are not our families who are people who are in need. Now, verse 5 says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when we want things, we are on the throne. We are the one exercising our pride. We are the one exercising our superiority. We are the ones we think we know what is best. But God who is in us, the Spirit of God who is in us, He envies intensely this desire to take away us from the world and put us in the realm of what God desires for us. And so this battle takes place. This war takes place within us. Uh, talking about stuff, we want stuff and we don't get it as a result. We fight, we cause harm, we do destruction. God plan, God's plan is that we don't seek after these things that are produced by the world. God desires intensely that we should seek after what he wants for us. And when we fail in this, when we seek after the things of the world, he gives us even more grace when we are humbled by it. If we are prideful in it, he opposes us. When we think that we know what is best, if we proudly continue to seek after the things of the world, he will oppose us. And we don't want to be on the opposing side of God. You know, it's kind of like in our society today, there are not repercussions for crimes committed. I don't know what happened to this guy who says he got his arm shut off, but he's probably out on bail. Uh, right now with all the other guys who had uh, firearms. And if we're not dealing with that, uh, the selfishness of the heart, the desires that are evil, 
then the world is just going to break down culturally. And God is jealous that we don't allow that, that we do what he wants us to do. So God is jealous over us and his wrath that can come to us because of pride is cured by humility. If we're just simply humble and say, Lord, if you desire that I have this, great. If not, well, I'm just as content. God, if you desire that I'm single for the rest of my life, okay, well, maybe great, not so great, but I want to do your will. I want to seek after what you want for me rather than what I want for myself. And so we should humbly accept that we fail when choosing things over God. And if we humbly admit this to God, he provides abundant grace. If we do not, he will oppose us. So there's a solution to all this fighting, fighting on the outside, fighting on the inside with what we want. And it is submission to God and dependence upon him. Verse 7 says, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So you have four things here. Stand and resist the devil. Draw near to God. Grieve and become humble. That's the remedy. That's the prescription for these things that we want that we're not getting. Now, these temptations come along Certainly by Satan, you want this. You deserve a break today. Look how good you'll look in this new car, even though you can't afford it. It's going to be good for a while, isn't it? Go ahead, buy these really expensive things from the Internet. Look how easy it is. Just put your credit card in there and click, and it'll be there the next day from Amazon. It is so wonderful for you. And then you can build more sheds to put that stuff in the sheds, and then you can sell the old stuff. And it's just this vicious cycle that we deal with. And, you know, we, we have to recognize this is our bent. This is all of our bents. We want stuff things, attitudes, actions, and we don't get it and we become frustrated. Have you ever called somebody or visited a store? They used to have a complaint department, returns of merchandise. I remember there used to be a store called Sears down here in El Cajon, and Sears had this customer service area and there'd be people behind the counter and people would be bringing things all the time back and forth and and of course if you ever listen to anybody from customer service they end up hating people and they never want that job ever again because some individuals are so demanding of what they want and how they're not being satisfied and, and complaining about everything and we need to recognize our tendency in this to want to complain we're not getting i'm not getting what i want And if we do that, if we recognize that is actually sin on the inside, we should get to the point where we are able to grieve, mourn, and wail over that sin. That's how bad God considers it. It's not just something, ah, you know, it's not that big a deal. Oh, you got angry, but you were justified in that. Our friends, family, they want to do that. They want to tell us, it's okay, you know, You were justified in that. They shouldn't have done that to you. And we should turn to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, this is sin in me. I have to make sure that I purge this sin. Again, verse 9 says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Now that is another message that is in the scriptures here. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which do you think is better? To pursue happiness or to pursue grief, mourning, and wailing over your sin? Which, do you, which one do you think the Bible says? The Bible says it is better to go to the house of the morning than to go up to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. So contrary to what the world would say, mourning over our condition is better than always trying to seek to be happy. The world says... Take this drug. Take this medication. If you take this, you'll start to be happier. You'll lift yourself out of depression. And rather than going to individual and saying, well, is there a sin in your life that you haven't dealt with? And you need to go before God and repent of that particular sin. Grieve, mourn, and wail over that sin because sadness in the heart is good because it brings joy. That's how the joy comes when we recognize our particular state of being, where we are. We are fallen in nature. I don't know about you, but in, in the culture I grew up with, my father and my mother, four boys in the house, we didn't cry. If we were crying, we were mad. And if we were mad, we were fisticuffs. Broken shower doors, shotgun holes through the walls you know it's like a combat zone in our house with all four boys there and the the dominating older ones until the younger ones got bigger i mean it's just it's constant going back and forth that's just what boys do boys fight now if you think boys don't fight i don't know what household you grew up in but and girls they fight but they do so with their words and and this idea that this fighting is going on and, and when you get older you realize that you know it's not all about fighting it's all, not all about winning all the time although that's fun to do that you get to the point where you start becoming grieved as I get older my eyes have a tendency to leak over things you know what that means I get sad on the inside and I find that it helps me on the inside if I'm able to grieve inwardly and maybe the eyes leak a little bit. And of course, you don't do that in front of anybody. You can't, you know, movies on the screen. <clears throat> you can't choke or anything like that. And you have to be able to grieve. You have to be able to be a little more emotional. I, I know that as I get older, I look at my kids and the grandkids, I look at the state of the world, and I start getting grieved on the inside. Not only for the state of the world, but for the state of myself. And this is going to end. Two-thirds of my life is over. You know, I'm not going to live past 80 or 90 or 100 years old. I don't know whatever the date is going to be. But we're supposed to get to that point. Weep, mourn. And wail. If you have a problem with that, ask God to reveal it to you. You have to spend time alone with God. Say, God, reveal to me my sin. And when the Holy Spirit starts moving, that grief that comes in is a cleansing. It sets us right with him. And that's what God wants. Pleasure is a tyrant. And grief is the gift that restores the soul. And so the longer we live, the more pain we experience. With age comes wisdom. With age comes weakness. With age, there should come also humility and grief and weeping and mourning and wailing over our condition, the prideful state that we exist. And you want to contemplate this or ruminate on it a little bit. And I'll close with this. The 
Psalm of Lament, Psalm 51, it says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. So quarreling, fighting, warring against each other. Humility is what we're supposed to seek after. Don't demand our own ways. We want to be careful to take time, if at all possible, to weep before God, have him reveal our sins to us. And like I said, if you find it difficult, this does require time alone with God. You have to ask him to show you the depths of your depravity and give you a heart for the people that are out there. When I saw all of these crimes being committed, the stabbings and the gunshots, it's like, where are we as a society? And it's all because of the sin that dwells within. Now, speaking of sin, we're going to receive communion this morning. And Kim's going to come up, and as she starts to play, you know, if you need to just start right now and say, God, I, I think your word is correct. We need to look at our evil desires and just have it come to pass that I'm able to weep over my sin and for the sins of the fa- family and friends and the sins of our nation and the sins of the world. That will set us right. That will give us a, a right standing before God in our heart because that will bring humility knowing that his word is true, his word is righteous, he is right when he judges uh, a judgment of wrath against us, just like Psalm 51 says. So as the song is being played and the lights are taken down, we'll open up the communion here and just ask God, say, God, show me. Show me who I really am and bring to me humility. So go ahead, Kim. 